Welcome to Radio Beacon, the podcast of Beacon Communications. I'm Dan Kittredge, editor of the Cranston Herald, flying solo for this uh, special installment. Um, as we uh, did last week, um, we uh, released uh, two episodes back to back, based uh, centered on interviews I conducted with two of the candidates for mayor in Cranston. Uh, last week we had Citywide Councilman Ken Hopkins, a Republican, and Citywide Councilman Steve Stikos, who's running as a Democrat. Uh, this week, um, those interviews have continued. This week, we are joined by Council President Mike Farina, who is facing Hopkins in the September 8th primary, um, looking to succeed Mayor Alan Fung, who is uh, leaving office after more than a decade um, due to term limits. So uh, it's a really uh, significant change in the city's leadership on the way. And uh, it's been great to talk to these candidates and get a sense of um, their vision for the city and why they're running and their, their records and experience and uh, how they're pitching themselves to voters. Uh, Council President Farina was very generous with his time. Uh, I know this, this runs a bit long, but I think it's all valuable and I think it's all uh, um, a great chance for voters to hear directly from him. Um, so uh, we'll go to that uh, interview momentarily. Um, just uh, ahead of that, um, I am scheduled in the next couple of days to be sitting down with former Councilwoman Maria Bucci, who is running for uh, the Democratic nomination. She'll face Steve Stikos and uh, Adam Carbone in the September 8th primary for the Democratic nod. Um, so I'm looking forward to sitting down with Maria soon and getting that out, uh, that conversation out. Um, we uh, previously spoke with Adam Carbone. Go back and check out our uh, our uh, our archive previous episodes if you want to hear from him. Um, I'd also uh, like to take this chance just to plug to listeners uh, once again. If you haven't heard, um, we'll have another chance coming up very soon for folks to hear from these candidates. Uh, this coming Wednesday, I'm recording this on Friday, August 14th. On Wednesday, the 19th at 7 p.m., um, I will be moderating a debate between Councilman Hopkins and Council President Farina. It's going to be held at the Cranston Public Library's Central Library on Sakonasic Crossroads. Unfortunately, um, because of uh, social distancing and safety concerns and capacity limits at the library, um, there won't be a live audience, but the uh, event is going to be streamed live on Facebook, on both the Herald's Facebook page, and I'm told the libraries as well. Um, I want to take this uh, opportunity again to thank Ed Garcia and his staff at the library for all of their help and for their willingness to uh, co-sponsor this event with us and um, to help make it available to folks. It's a really great service, I think. Um, I've gotten a lot of uh, um, questions emailed from readers, um, things that they want uh, the candidates to be asked. Um, so I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so Wednesday, August 19th, 7 p.m., um, catch it live on Facebook, on our page, on the, the library's page. And uh, my understanding is that uh, on Facebook it will be live immediately after, thereafter, um, on demand as a Facebook video. Um, I believe it will be posted on the library's YouTube page as well, and I'll see uh, what we can do to make it available. Um, in other uh, in other formats and other other locations too. Um, the following week on Wednesday, August 26th, uh, the three Democrats, Steve Stikos, Maria Bucci, and Adam Carbone, will uh, I'll be moderating a debate between them at the, also at the library. 
because of the larger field, we'll be starting at 6.30 that night. Um, it'll also be live streamed, unfortunately, no audience, but um, the library's got a great setup and I'm, uh, you know, it's a, it'll be a great chance to uh, hear directly from all three of those candidates. So uh, mark your calendars, Wednesday, August 19th, Wednesday, August 26th, 7 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. respectively for the Republican and Democratic candidates for mayor. Um, with that, I will uh, head to the conversation I recently had with Council President Farina. Again, thanks to him for making the time. Um, it was a good conversation. We covered a lot of ground, and I hope this is useful to voters as they, uh, as they consider the field and, and make a really important decision for Cranston. Um, the first step of it happening on the, the primary day on September, September 8th. Also put out the word, uh, I know I saw Nick Lima, the city's registrar and director of elections, uh, put out, uh, I believe yesterday or earlier today on social media, that they uh, have gotten a good response. They, they were worried about poll worker shortages. I guess they have um, gotten a bunch of uh, responses and recruits, and they are looking for a few more. So um, go check, uh, check out our past coverage. Go to the city's website and find information if you're interested in working as a poll worker um, and helping make sure that these elections can go on uh, safely and with the staffing we need. Um, you know that uh, if you're if you have the time you're you're able and uh, and want to volunteer I'd certainly encourage folks to do so so um, just another plug there but uh, so enjoy uh, this conversation with council president Mike Farina and uh, we will talk to you soon Dan, it's always good to see you and, and be with you and, and talk to your readers. So this is a new thing for the for the Beacon. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Uh, I'm glad to be on the podcast and happy to uh, get more information out to voters. Indeed. Uh, to start things off, um, the question I've been leading off with largely to the candidates is why you're running. Why are you, why are you uh, choosing to get into the mayoral fair this year? So as an elected official, I've always been at the forefront of helping people. That's one of the things that made me want to run for office. Uh, in 2010, when I first ran for council citywide, it was because I had a pothole in front of my house and I couldn't get it fixed. And I thought about the challenge I had in trying to do that, and I thought about challenges that other people had, and how do I help the process? So I said, you know what, I'm going to run for office. Uh, and I started that process, and as I was elected to the council, I was privileged to be the council vice president, privileged to be elected by my peers to be the council president. And I had more involvement in helping people and understanding city government, understanding how the budget worked and how municipal government runs. And I thought to myself about two years ago, I think when Mayor Fung leaves, I want to be the mayor. Actually, it was close to like four years ago. We were thinking about it, but we really didn't make the decision. You know, it was one of those progressive decisions. You know, you think back in 16 when he was running for governor, for the second time, like, well, what if he wins? I'm the council president. I would be appointed mayor if he's lucky enough to win. And you start thinking, well, do I want to be the mayor? How would that work? Uh, what would happen to my career? Uh, what would happen to my family? What would be the effect? Because we started to actually have those real discussions because the mayor was running for governor. And had he won, I would have become the mayor. So it's like, well, what does that mean? 
So as you're starting to think about it and you prepare yourself for that contingency, uh, and he, he didn't win, sadly. You know, Alan lost the governor's race, and we started to talk to my wife and my kids, and, you know, I've talked talk to you about it back in 16 and 17. It's something that we're always thinking about. It's always at the back of our minds, and we're, we're kind of just, just seeing how things play out and how, how things go. And about a year and a half ago, we came to the decision that we wanted to run for mayor. We started to raise money. We started to talk to residents. We started to get the, the feel for would people accept me as the mayor? And the answer to those questions as we worked the process was yes. We raised a significant amount of money in 2019. Uh, we had several fundraisers. We had great attendance. We built volunteer pools. And we just started to see growth in support for us. Uh, and it was, it was a, a great time for me personally just to, to, to feel that support. And it was very humbling to see people come to you and say, you know, we think you'd make a good mayor. You have the skills. Uh, that would translate well to the mayor's office. We want to see someone like you with a professional business background become our mayor. So we decided to run. Mm. Uh, we announced back in January of this year. And since then, we've just keep, kept growing in support uh, and really tried to put Cranston at the center of why we're doing this. We're not doing this for our own ego. We're not doing this because uh, we want to walk around and say we're the mayor and, and play golf. We're doing this because we firmly believe that the city of Cranston needs someone who's ready to lead day one, who has the business skills and abilities, the corporate abilities, uh, the finance abilities, management, building high-performing teams, things that you don't usually see a mayor walk in with. Uh, and, and I think more now than ever, coming out of a COVID world where we're going to be stuck with a huge budget crisis at the state, huge deficits of over a billion dollars, unknowns of where things are going to come from. You know, we can't just elect a tax and spend politician. We can't just elect someone who's going to do more with more. We need to elect someone who's going to do more with less. And my background, you know, my current position at, at the company I work for is I'm a director in strategy and negotiations. So what that means is it's my job to cut costs. We work with suppliers internally, externally. We work with procurement people. We work with different divisions that may have waste. My teams go in, we find the waste, we fix it, and we move on. We've saved the company close to $500 million in the four years I've been back in this role. So I think those skills really translate well to be the mayor, to take that, that tact to look at how we're going to save money, because we're going to need to. You know, we can't just talk about, I want to spend money on education, and, and I've listened to all the other candidates, and I've got all their materials, and you, you see their stuff online, and you read what they're talking about. They're all talking about spending money. I have yet to hear one of them talk about how they're going to pay for all these things they talk about. And that's where I have a different skill set. <clears throat> Having a background in financial planning, forecasting, understanding where funds are going to come from, the ability to uh, find savings, cut wasteful spending, those are skills you need if you want to grow the city. Because uh, my goal will be to increase city services while reducing the, or holding the line on taxes. I think it's unrealistic to reduce them. I'd love to be able to, uh, but we'd have to grow commercial development by so much that it would just be unrealistic. It would just be too much of a burden on the, on the taxpayer. So that's really why I wanted to get in the race and why I'm in it and, and why I'm in it to, uh, to help the people of Cranston. Yeah, so to, to go a little out of order, it strikes me you know, that the, the financial picture has changed so dramatically from when this race began. You know, things I said in January, I probably wouldn't stand by today. You know, I, I talk a lot about uh, investing in different parts of the city and looking at, you know, growing. And these are things I still want to do as mayor, but things that I won't be able to do in that first 
two years probably because we're going to be coming out of COVID. You know, I still think we need to update the city hockey rink. I still think we need to, to pave a lot more roads and streets. We need to work on fixing the infrastructure. There's a lot of things that haven't been done in the last last 15 years. It's just the way it is. Uh, I, I don't pretend to, to say, it, say it in a bad way, but there are a lot of things that need to be fixed. So unfortunately, coming out of COVID, our goal is going to be to keep the, the train on the tracks. Yeah. Keep, keep everything moving forward. Keep everybody employed. Uh, there's a real, real problem coming in Cranston, and I don't hear any of the other candidates talking about it. I'll give you a great point. You know, back in April when the mayor released his budget, I was the first one to sit there and say, no, no, guys, this is, this is a bad budget. We got a problem. We, we got to wait. Like, we, we got to figure this out. We got to work with the speaker. We got to work with the Senate president. We got to talk to the governor. We got to get with them. We got to figure out this thing. We can't just pass this budget. And, you know, my opponent talked about how great the budget was and Mayor Allen Fung is a genius and, and the budget is perfect. But when I started ringing the alarm bell, they all started to say, oh, yeah, the revenues are too high. Oh, you know, look, look at the school funding. We don't know if this money's coming in. Let's take that one example. That's $4.1 in a year that becomes aggregate. So you know how the budget works. You take the 4.1, it becomes the maintenance of effort, and then every year you have to give the schools that money. I'm all for funding the schools. But not knowing where that funding is coming from, that's a forty-one million dollar problem over ten years. That's huge. So I was advocating heavily to wait till the state did their job, and I got this pushback from the administration that we have to, we can't do this. We need to send the tax bills out. Even the attorneys were like, "No, no, you need to, you need to finalize the budget before you send out the tax bills." I didn't agree with that logic. And hindsight is twenty-twenty, but. Uh, several other cities and towns have done exactly what I advocated for in holding their budgets in advance, sending out tax bills in lieu of changes to the state funding. Uh, so, you know, I, I still believe that that was the right tact. Uh, unfortunately, the, some of the members of the council didn't agree and they, they passed the budget. And I think we have some structural deficits built into that budget. Um, you know, it's, this is one of the times I hate to be proven right because the city of Cranston suffers. Uh, so again, it's it's it's. I, I have a different leadership style than than Mayor Fung. I have a different leadership style than most of my opponents. I'm very transparent. If I see something wrong, I'm going to say something. I'm not just going to you know carry the the flag of, of of a party or a person. I'm going to say, no, no, we got a problem because the city of Cranston suffers. As a lifelong resident, as someone who's who has a vested interest in this city, who has roots here, for me, it's important we do that. So, yeah. it uh, similar. Note, I mean, it it strikes me that the the mayor remains pretty popular, that a lot of people view his, his tenure as a time of relative fiscal stability and improvement for the city, especially compared to some previous eras in administration. Yeah. Um, the bar was set pretty low. Yeah. I mean, when Mayor Fung came into office, he was facing a, a fiscal crisis, and he did a great job of getting us out of that fiscal crisis. He did. I, I, I give him total credit for that. Uh, but there were some some challenges in his administration. You know, you had some some police scandal. You had the police scandal. You had increased legal fees. Uh, we didn't fix enough buildings, and, and a lot of this, some of this, is not his fault. Uh, the buildings issue has to do with the with the uh, superintendent of education, Deborah Gist, putting in a moratorium on school building fixes. So that's not entirely his fault. Um, we have roads and streets that need to get paved again. If people didn't do it for the 20 years before he was married, he had a lot to catch up on. And, and he did the best he could with what he had coming out of a financial crisis. But you look at his experience going into this. He had been a two-term city council person uh, and a lobbyist. I compare him. Now, I wouldn't compare myself now to him now because he's been the mayor for 12 years. So his experience level is really high. 
But if I compare myself to him when he first ran, I'm four years older than him. I have more leadership experience in city government. I have more executive leadership at, at a Fortune 5 company. I sit on the board of directors for a company. So these are all assets and experiences that I have that even Alan, when he became the mayor, didn't have. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna work hard for the city of Cranston. You know, he, he did a good job with, with coming out of the fiscal crisis. But over the last few years, we're, we're kind of rolling back into a fiscal crisis. And my, my belief is it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. And we're finishing the race in a, in a, in a big hole. So my hope is whoever the next mayor is, relatively confident it's going to be me because we're going to work hard to make that happen. But whoever the next mayor is, is facing a significant crisis. And to sugarcoat it and say that, you know, we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to, everything's going to be great and you're going to lead Cranston to a bright future, that, that, that's true. I'm going to do that. But it's going to be through hard work, elbow grease, and getting in there, cutting expenses, cutting wasteful spending, and really putting the taxpayer first. To, uh, Pivot to the school budget situation yep. a little bit. Tying, I mean, the, there's been this tension playing out kind of between the mayor and, and the speaker and some of the legislative leadership about who gets the credit for the the funding and whether you know the, whether the city has picked up its share while the state has increased its funding. Mm -hmm. But then obviously we reached this year and the the assembly's lack of action has left this four million dollar hole that you mentioned. It um, has. That, that that is a true statement, Dan. The the uh, the. Delay in action because of COVID has caused a fiscal hole. In the council chambers and cities and towns, there's only nine members or 12 members or 15 members of a council. So it's a little easier for us to do something on Zoom and do things more remote. Uh, with a 75 member legislature, I don't know how they would start to do things in a remote fashion. They could have tried it. I think I would have liked to see that experiment play out in some of the committee meetings, uh, but they didn't. So I'm not gonna fault them for trying to stay safe during the time of COVID. I would have liked to have seen more action. I mean, it's just the way it is. I would have liked to have seen more action, uh, but I don't know how they would have done it with 75 people trying to be on a Zoom call. I mean, I've led these Zoom calls with, you know, 12 people between the council and the administration and 15 residents at, at the most, and, and they're, they're difficult. They're, they're not easy to run a Zoom call, and, and I've been challenged to do it and do it effectively uh, with 75 people and, and the kind of, I would say, how to put this... Uh, personalities that they have at the state house. I don't know how we would do it on Zoom. Yeah. I mean, they came back once and people were like, why are we back? We shouldn't even be meeting. It's um, it's difficult. His action would have helped the city, um, but I've been in contact with him since this happened and, and I talk to him every time I see him or, or we're at something together or, because that's few and far between now because no one, uh, there's not a lot of political events as you can imagine. There's not a lot of uh, baseball games or things that I would run into on that, but Is this a speaker? Yeah. yeah. I make it a point to, 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 to force the issue that, hey, you need to go back and you need to fund Cranston schools. And every time I do, he says, we're working on it. I'm, I'm working with the assembly. We're working with the budget. We'll get there. We closed the, the, the hole from last year. Now we have to, to, to go tackle this behemoth for next year. And, uh, and he's been very receptive to discussions, open to when residents call, I say, you know what? I, I can't give the city. I can't give the, the city four point one million dollars right now. Only one group can. You need to contact your state legislature, your state senators. You need to get with them and let them know how you feel. Let them know that you want them to fund education at one hundred percent. So, had we held the budget, it would have been a little easier for us to to go as a group and take the whole council and, and negotiate and discuss. But 
now that the budget's closed, we're, we're kind of like, like the superintendent is landlocked now. Uh, by cutting that $4.1 million education and improving the budget, she essentially has a $4.1 million hole she has to go fill. So she's building plans to assume that that money's not coming. When we start school in a couple weeks. So that's the challenge that we're all in. But, but you know, I, I'm hopeful that I don't think we'll get the whole 4.1. You know, I just, I, in this crisis, I don't see anyone getting 100% of the state aid they were promised. But he's, he's made statements to the speaker that he wants to fund education. Education is important to him. And then the mayor has come out and said, well, who gets credit for state funding? I, I don't care. Like, I don't care who gets credit, Dan. I want the kids to get educated. You know, I, I'm a little selfish in this regard because I have two children in the Cranston Public School System. I want funding so my kids get the right education. It's just, it's a little different for me. You know, um, speaker's kids are all growing up. Alan doesn't have any kids, so they're, they're having a political fight. I'm fighting for the people. It's a very different, very different aspect. What would your approach be to education funding going forward? Yeah, so that the mayor, the mayor's really, you know, I'm running against someone who calls himself the education mayor, but the mayor really only has one goal when it comes to education. It's funding education at 100%. And my goal would be to fund education at 100% because you know, the mayor does not dictate to the school department how they spend their money. The mayor can make suggestions, of course, and I plan on making suggestions as the mayor. I plan on partnering with Superintendent Nata Massey on looking at what buildings they plan on updating once the bond comes through. I plan on having those open, frank discussions on what my feelings would be as the mayor. But in reality, it's going to be her and the school committee's decision on what they do. Because uh, most, most people don't know this. They hear, they hear someone talking about, I'm the education mayor, and I think we have to you know, do this in, in Eden Park, and we're going to do that. Well, that's, that's nice. And if you want to do that, you should run for school committee or apply to be a superintendent, because the mayor's job is to fund education, not direct education. So as a mayor, I would work to fund education at 100% of their ask, as much as we can in a, in a time post-COVID, and then I would also look at partnering with the superintendent and the school committee to work together to help them understand, like, as mayor, this is what I would like to see and explain to them why I would like to see it. You know, I do think the 21st century classroom is super important. I think working together to figure out what that looks like is definitely important and getting feedback from the residents. I think that's where a lot of this gets lost from politicians, where they talk about their views or the views of people that support them, but they don't talk about the views of the people. What do the people think? And, and that's, that's where I'm gonna be a lot different than, than most anyone who's, who's tried to do this. I, I'm, I have a firm belief that elected officials serve the will of the people. I don't mind getting bad feedback from a resident. I don't mind hearing from them say, I didn't like how you did this, because it helps me be a better leader. You know, I've been on the council eight years, I've been privileged to be the president for four, so for me, it's always good to get that feedback, to know that, that when I did something that someone didn't agree with or, or they didn't like my, my action or my tone or something that I did, it's good to, you know what, you were right. I, I went back and looked at that and self-reflect and say that was the wrong thing to do. So that's, that's how I'm going to lead. That's what the people want. So if the people want the bond, which I think they do, everybody I've talked to as I've campaigned and canvassed has said, yeah, we got to fix our school buildings. It's important. Education is important. So support the school bond. Very, very, very easy. Um, but I do hear challenges from them on, well, what are you gonna fix? How are you gonna fix Cranston East? How are you gonna fix Cranston West? How are you gonna fix different schools? How's it gonna affect my student? So for me, it's, well, people know that we have this bond and 
people think they know what we're going to fix, but they're not really sure. So I think we need to be a little more transparent, hear from the people a little more, and potentially do more um, you know, emails to, to parents who say, hey, this, this is the plan. How does everyone feel about it? Uh, it's tough to do. I mean, $150 million is a lot of money, and it's going to cost the city a, a good chunk of change to, to fix some of these buildings. But we want to make sure we're putting in the right areas. And I know the superintendent's done a lot of that work, so I'm not trying to discount any of the work she's done or the work that her team has done. But I, I just like, as I canvassed in the campaign, that people are questioning, like, well, I see the bond, but what are you going to fix? So I think that's maybe a, you know, as you as you work and walk, you learn. I think that's maybe a gap in, in the delivery of what we're doing. So, sure. What are your thoughts on the whole reopening process at this point? I'm going to be a father right now instead of a politician. So I... Uh, I think it's either all or nothing. I think you, you send them back to school or you don't. Um, I don't like the phased opening approach because personally for me, I don't think we have the army of people to go clean all 29 schools. So if we don't have the people to go clean all the schools daily, if somebody gets sick and they're in the schools, COVID's going to be in the school. So at that point, if you can't clean it, you're going to catch it. And if you're going to catch it and you're alternating, it doesn't matter if you alternate because it's going to be in there. Now, there's something to be said was maybe you'd have less of a penetration of sickness if only half the school is there. But I just, I, I believe that you either, we either bite down and send them back or we do distance learning. I don't, I don't think a phased approach makes sense because the expense is so high with busing and, and, you know, distancing kids and resetting schools and, and what do teachers do who have kids if they have to be back all five days, but their kids are only back a few days? It just creates a lot of challenges for people. So as a parent, as a dad, I kind of want to be told, listen, we're doing distance learning until we get a vaccine or until we get more clarity on, on the infection rate or until it goes away. Um, and and that, that creates problems too. Uh, or we all go back and then we risk everybody getting sick and that creates problems too. There's no easy answer here. This is gonna be this is gonna be a very polarizing issue. And as a father, it's just like I I, I want you to develop a plan to tell me what it is. And I think a big problem for parents is the school department really can't develop a plan because as the governor said, you know, we were planning on this should have been phase four. Like we should be in phase four right now. Everything should be should be really kind of getting back to the new norm because it yeah. won't go back to what it was, but. She said, hey, we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta stay in phase three. Not only do we have to stay in phase three, we're going backwards. So if, if that trend continues, the answer will be made for us. It'll just be, hey, listen, distance learning. Yeah. So that's the challenge we're in. And, and I give the superintendent and her staff a lot of credit because they're building plans in an unknown environment. They don't know their budget. They don't know what's going to happen in, in, in August, and we're only a few weeks away. And they're, sh and they're building plans based on the current, and then when the current changes, they got to rebuild the plan. So I, uh, I have all the respect for Janine Nadamassi and her staff of, of, of individuals in that school administration. They are doing a Herculean effort, constantly augmenting the plan. So I, uh, I, hope, I hope, you know, I, I, you never build a budget on wish and hope. That's something one of my finance manager said to me a long time ago uh, but I hope that this will solve itself as time goes on because it's 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 no easy feat and parents I've talked to are, are you know some of them are saying keep them home some of them say send them back some of them say I don't want to send them it's just it's it's just it's, yeah. a, it's a weird scene man yeah 
following me on social media too. Which is, I don't, I don't envy anyone who's involved in the. No, no. So, so this is where I become a dad and say, you tell me if we're sending him back. You tell me if we're not, and uh, we'll yeah. figure it out. Uh, I don't think I, I think. Oh, I can't talk. I can't say that because my wife will have have her say. But I, th- I think I wouldn't mind distance learning for at least a little bit while we, we kind of get through September. Because for me, you know, everyone talks about the winter coming. It may change COVID. It may change the landscape. Mm-hmm. If, if this gets really bad, because, you know, flu season comes up that October, November, December. Allergy season comes up September, October. You know, you don't want someone who thinks, oh, I just have the sniffles. Like, as you can tell, I'm coughing a bit. I have allergies. I've always had allergies. Um, so... I know I have allergies, and I've had a, had a rapid COVID test a few weeks ago. I'm good, but what about the kid who's just a kid who wakes up and he's got the sniffles, and the parents don't even realize it's in the school, and he potentially or she potentially has COVID. So that's that's the for me the bigger challenge of sending them back. It's not so much should we or shouldn't we, or it's it's what happens when cold and flu season comes and allergy season gets heavy, and you have a lot of kids that, that just could be showing signs of symptoms of having allergies, and someone's like, you know what, just go to school, you'll be fine, and they have COVID. I mean, listen, as a parent, my wife and I have been suspect to it, where our daughter woke up uh, back in February, and she had a headache, and we sent her to school. She had the flu. And we said, oh, she had a headache, She's, she'll be okay. And, you know, it's just, you do it. Oh, it's just a headache, everything's fine. And she comes home, the, the nurse calls you and says, oh, she's throwing up everywhere, and you're like, Oh no! And you take her to the doctor, and they test her. Hey, she had the flu. And look, she just had a headache this morning. And the doctor's like, "Yeah, it happens like that. Where in the morning you have a headache, by the end of the day, you're a full-blown flu." So it is what it is. Don't you're not bad parents. It happens to everybody. Just just watch because now your son's gonna get it. And lo and behold, a couple of days went by, and Michael had the flu. So it's, it's I, I'm more I'm more worried about that as a parent than I am like what's gonna happen in September. Because yeah. because that's my my big fear. And if if incident level spikes. Because we're all back to work and we're all back to, to normalcy, then then we're gonna have a problem. I mean, c- my company has told me that don't expect to come back to the office until January first. So if companies are saying January first, and and they pay me to be there, like I get paid to go to work, you get paid to come to work. They're telling us, let's be remote until January and see how this plays out. And and these are large companies, and and you're talking to small companies, they're doing the same thing. So if companies are saying January first, and and you know. They want to protect their shareholders. Yeah. At some point, my personal belief is we kind of have to keep everybody home for a little bit longer. As much as I don't want to, um, as much as I'd love to, to, to see everybody go back and you know get rid of the masks that we're all wearing, I just don't think that's feasible right now. Yeah. How do you, to kind of wrap up on the COVID stuff, what, what's your view of the governor's handling of all this and the mayor as well? I, I, um, I, I respect what the governor's done to this point. Um, She's been she's done a great job of leadership. She's made a couple of couple of fumbles, you know. I think her going out to the protest without the mask was a big fumble. Um, her uh, going out to, to, to restaurants and not socially distancing and getting caught with the cameras is a bit of a fumble, you know. As a leader, don't just do what you say, do what you do. Like your actions kind of speak for you. Uh, but her leadership has been tremendous, so I have the utmost respect for what she's done. Everybody fumbles occasionally, so. I don't, uh, I don't think that, you know, you see him on social media. I don't think those occasions of her making some poor judgments reflect on, like, those two things do not wipe out the six months of really hard work she did to, to lead the state to the crisis. And, you know, Mayor Fung has been communicating with me almost daily uh, on, the, uh, on the pandemic and the pandemic situation. Um, I get texts from him 
to, for updates, um, to know that kind of what's happening. Uh, he's been good at communicating with me as the council president, communicating with the rest of the council, letting us know what's going on. He's been very receptive when we've had challenges, uh, even during during the, uh, the, the the protests that we had for Garden City. He was very open with what was happening. We had discussions during those few weeks. He and I about what the plans were going to be and, and my my views on what needed to happen. He was receptive to my ideas. So he's been um, he's been doing a good job. I can't fault Mayor Fung's leadership during the time of crisis. He's uh, he's doing good. To uh, pivot to um, some of the big issues facing the city and that are going to kind of shape this campaign. I think. Yep. Economic development. Um, you know, there's been flashpoints around it lately. Last mm -hmm. year with the solar farms. Yeah. Now we've got this. Uh, Costco development at Mulligan's Island, which uh, right in the middle of the campaign has been um, garnering a lot of attention. Yeah, this uh, one's actually easier for me now because, yeah. you know, everyone was asking when the plans first came out, like, what are you going to do? And my opponent put out a press release that he was going to stand with the residents, and that, that's fine. Um, I take a more measured approach when I look at a project. I want to see the plans. I want to talk to the developer. I want to have some initial questions answered. I want to talk to residents. I want to see what, what the impacts are. And then I make a decision. Uh, and at this point, I have made my decision on this project. And I still have a lot of questions. The site walk this week is going to be a good, good time to ask some of those questions and kind of listen. Uh, but based on looking at the plans, based on what I've seen so far, the impact of this development is too much for that site. Uh, between the, the, three, the three buildings that they want to put at the front, which are retail, the future retail on the right of the Costco, the Costco itself, the 40 residential units, I don't think the council ever intended for the use on that piece to be this intense. So at this point, I think I can't support the project in this in this fashion. It's too, it's too much of a burden on the residents, and I'm and I'm letting the residents know that via a letter this week that this is just something that in its current form I just can't support. I'm not against development of the site. Like I, I want to be be clear. I think there is a development that makes sense at that site, but this is just so big and so much of an impact to the residents of the area, and it eliminates the entire vegetative buffer. So for me, this project just doesn't make sense. Fair enough. But it takes time to develop that decision. Yeah. You know, that's, that's again, that's how I lead. I don't want any business to ever think I'm anti-business. I will, you know, I, I looked at it, I went to the community meeting, I talked to residents, you know, while my opponents all scurried out and then put out press, press releases that, that you know, we were in the background. I stayed and talked to residents. I stayed and talked to the committee for safe development. I stayed there and listened to what they had to say. And I encourage them to continue to send in your, your, your testimony, continue to be part of the process because your feedback matters. And, and as I kept getting, as I keep getting more emails and I keep getting more little Facebook messages on, on why they're against it. And I look at the impact of the site. It's, it's easy to see that what they're proposing is too much for the area. So, in terms of development more broadly, looking at the, the mayor's record, I think some critics suggest that he's you know focused too much on larger developers, larger projects, maybe at the expense of, of smaller business yeah, so storefronts. What, what's your vision for economic development? My, um, it's actually on my comp card. My, uh, my economic development plan is to grow small business because I believe people want to shop small. I think the era of big retail uh, is coming to a close. I think boutique retail and and specific retail like a pharmacy, like a hardware store, th 
those specific retailers, I think, will still continue to thrive because they have a, a niche of what they serve. But the big, I mean, you can see it in, in the, the 401k filings of some of the bigger companies. You know, you look at Sears and you look at um, Kmart and you look at Target. They're struggling. You know, Target's doing well because of the COVID pandemic, but before that, they were, they were struggling to, to find sales and find their niche. Um, Walmart always does well just because they're, the way they build their stores, they put them in areas that they're the only game in town because they're so cheap they close everybody else. So they're kind of building that monopoly in retail. Um, big big box stores are just kind of going the way of the Buffalo. They're, they're, they're becoming extinct because people would rather go to a store where someone knows your name. So for me, my goal will be to expand small business. We have a loan program in the city uh, that provides small business loans to businesses that have been shut out of the process or have been denied elsewhere. I would work to find grants to grow that program. I also would look to create a small business platform because a lot of people, when they start their business, they, they don't know what to do. Like if like I look back to, if, I, if you wanted to open a restaurant and you said, you know what, I make the best barbecue in the state. I want to open a little barbecue joint. Do you know how to do that? Is there a place you can go where you can go to the city's website and say, hey, I want to put this business in Cranston. Here's all the information I need. Here's links to find an attorney. Here's links to find an accountant. Here's links to the Small Business Association. You know, we don't do a lot of that. So my goal would be to, to create a, a platform to have that information out for the public. So if someone wants to start a small business or someone's in a small business and needs help, we can give it to them. My goal would be to have the economic development director meet with, with new small business owners to help them understand, okay, here's a packet, just, just like we do with new residents. Here's a new business packet. This is what you need to do in, to help you kind of build your plan. You need to CPA, you gotta file your taxes, you gotta do this work. You know, we're gonna help you figure that out. And do that just through being open, honest, and transparent. So I wanna grow small business. We have a lot of areas in the city that, that have small businesses that are gone. You know, Rolf Square is a great example. Uh, so is, so parts of Knightsville, uh, people come in, they go out. It's difficult to keep small businesses kind of in place, especially when they don't know uh, some of the things they need to do. You know, I also look at the CDBG money we have for, for those listening, that's community, community block development grants. Uh, those funds can be used to help grow small business. So I would go get some of those funds from the corridor behind Rolf Square and use that money to help update Rolf Square. Again, the difference between me and my opponent is he says nice things, I will figure out how to pay for them. Because the vision for Cranston is grow small business, good education, fix roads and streets, not raise taxes. I think he missed that last one, not raise taxes. Figure out innovative ways to fund projects. So for me, it's you go get the CDBG money, you work with the, the government to get those funds unlocked so you can grow a Latina small business right in Rolf Square. So that's, that's the kind of attack that I would take to small business because as, long, as you grow small business, your commercial tax base goes down. I still think there's room for projects on, on the, I don't want to say on the scale of what's been presented for Costco because that one's just too big. But there's room for projects. I mean, we have a lot of industrial space. You know, if I was Costco, I would be looking to go off Pontiac Ave in the industrial park where we have a lot of open, open space back there, a lot of businesses that have closed or warehouse space that's available. I'd be looking to take some of that in because now the traffic is different and the impact is different. So there are, there are places we can put large-scale developments, um, but just not in our open space. Like I, I don't like the idea of just bulldozing a bunch of open space. Mm -hmm. Mulligans is going out of business. I mean, you know that. Yeah. He's, he's struggling financially, and he's a good guy, good, good family. But unfortunately, 
he's not making enough money to sustain his business. Yeah. So at some point, because it's highway commercial, something will, will come there. Uh, whether it's an expansion of what's there today or some other use, um, but the cost is too big. But again, small business is key. There is room for some development on large scale, but we have to be tactical mm-hmm. about where it goes. Like we can't just we can't just have this method of they want to go there, so let's put them there. It has to be well, they want to go there. Is that the right sp- spot for them? And if they come and it's not, then it's up to the administration to say, hey guys. I don't think this is the right plan for this area. So let's find a different spot for you. You know, we have a lot of uh, space on the western side of the city, and I don't mean in western Cranston. I'm talking on that Johnston Quarter off Situate Ave where we have that small industrial park. Can we leverage that for more offices, more more companies? I think, you know, Mayor Fung in his economic development did a lot of big projects, but they were very retail-focused. I'd like to see, as mayor, more companies come back to Cranston more jobs come back to Cranston. You know, when Alex and Ani left, uh, those were good jobs that, that just went away. I'd love to see that spot used for a company to come in. You know, if you think about the area there and the area where the old Citizens Bank building is, that's great office space. How do we create tax incentives or tax stabilization to let businesses come here and invest in those businesses as taxpayers? So they can bring jobs back to Cranston. And I'm not talking, you know, $15 an hour jobs. I'm talking seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollar a year jobs. That's what I, I want to see as mayor. That's what I would do as mayor is try to work with those companies to get them to relocate to Cranston. And that's what I would expect my economic development director to do. To uh to, to another ongoing issue, diversity, particularly in the city's workforce and efforts to make it you know, make the city's workforce more reflective of the community at large. Yeah. Well, first, first we'll talk about as council president. So as council president, um, I created the diversity commission, uh, and I actually sit as the ex officio of the diversity commission. And I created a commission not made up of just council people and mayor staff. We went out and got members of the public. And we, we got people on the, on the commission who could actually give us some real truth. And as you can probably attest, in the beginning it was difficult because there was some real truth coming out of the diversity commission, some things that, that really needed to change, and it showed that the city is not reflective of its diverse population. And we knew that going into the Diversity Commission. Uh, but things I'm proud the Diversity Commission has done is we've worked to eliminate the cardiac CAT-C requirement for firefighters. And for those listening, that, that is basically a $5,500 bill you have to pay to get certified as a cardiac technician before you can become a firefighter. So you take the test, you have to invest $5,500, and then after you get the results of the test, and you spend all this money, then they hire the top 15, 20 people, you're number 26, and you've invested $5,500. Or you're number 12, and you couldn't afford the 5500 and they skip over you because you don't have the cardiac cat C. So working with the Diversity Commission and working with that time Deputy Chief Valletta, who has since retired, uh, this came out of the commission that this is something we should do. And then a couple weeks later, Mayor Fung announced that he was going to support that, uh, which is good. Unfortunately, there is no firefighter contract coming up in the rest of his term, so the next mayor will have to make sure that, that we stick by that, that, that idea coming out of the Diversity Commission and eliminate the cardiac cat scene. If I become mayor, I've talked with the firefighter union, and, and they are supportive of removing that from their, uh, from their contract. So, so is, that is a post-employment requirement now, right? Yeah, so it'll become a – so you still need it. Yeah. 
but you have a certain amount of time to get it. And I'm working with the fire department unit to talk about expanding the loan program. So if somebody comes in and you know, they, they can't afford the 5,500, we can help them with that. So it's, it's things like that. Like I, I look at that as a barrier that was put in, God, I don't know, well before either one of us was born. And, and it's just, it's been there forever. And it's, it's, we can change it. Yeah. And we can eliminate barriers. And, and as mayor, that's what I will do. I will look at barriers of, of employment and I will eliminate them. I will work to hire people of color uh, in positions that, that make sense. You know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, I look at it a lot differently than my opponent. He was on and I listened to him and he talked about, you know, he's, he's promising people jobs and he's threatening uh, current mayoral staff if they don't pick a side that, you know, they don't have a place in the administration. We're a lot different. Uh, I have not promised anyone a job. I have not tried to hire a finance director. I have not asked anyone to stay on, nor have I said no one is, nor, nor have I said you're all leaving. I am going to hire the best and brightest talent to help us run the city. And being a finance professional, having an understanding of budgets, forecasts, I don't need to go hire expensive consultants and leaders to help me run the city uh, because I don't think we should hire uh, finance people to run the city or run the budget. I think the mayor should do that. And I think that people should elect the mayor who can do that, not have a mayor who's going to go hire people. Uh, but again, I'll hire the best and brightest and people of color definitely will, will have a seat at the table in my administration. We will be a diverse city hall. We will thrive on diversity. I, I believe in diversity. I always have. Um, I've been its champion on the council, pushing for it. Um, but again, it, it's, it's a lot easier to take credit for something when someone else is standing at the top and, and advocating for it. And then you're below taking credit or advantage of it. But the council president and the leadership are the ones that are you know, saying this is something we have, as a group have to do. So I, I, I'm going to push hard for diversity. And I'm even going to push hard for diversity in, in suppliers because I look at supplier diversity. Uh, this is a foreign concept to some people in government, but supplier diversity is another thing we have to talk about. Who are we buying our products from? Who are we, who are we leveraging to, to source things for? Are there any minority-owned or women-owned businesses in there? You know, the federal government has done a lot of work over the last 12 years to create um, benchmarks of how many minority-owned businesses companies have to have or they get fined. We don't have that in the city government. Like, we need to be promoting minority-owned businesses, um, women-owned businesses. We just need to. We need to be buying from them. We need to be supporting Cranston businesses. There's a lot of old policies and procedures in the city. Like, I, I agree with the BOCAP, Boards of Contracts and Purchases, is very important. You know, it's it needs to be done. There has to be a process to it because there's government is ripe for corruption and we don't want corruption but there has to be ways for people who don't know how to get a seat at the table to get a seat at the table so people who have historically been shut out of the bid process because they don't know how it works we're going to make that more transparent not the bids themselves but the process and how someone can be part of it because we want everybody to have a seat at the table and at the end of the day and when you do things like that you'll find that that best businesses rise to the top and, and we focus on minority and women owned businesses too and they'll get a seat at the table and they'll be part of the process they have been shut out of. So your, your, your approach, what you're, you're suggesting something more focused on outreach or about building the connections rather than uh, a, a quota that's in place in some cities or what, like what, the what, discount program. Qu quotas, quotas are fine but quotas are a short term fix because mm -hmm. once you hit the quota you're done. And I never want to be the kind of mayor that says well, they've told me I have to do this, so I'm going to go do it. I look at it like the Rooney Rule in football. The Rooney Rule is you have to interview a person of color. That's all it says. 
what are the results of that? How many have been hired? And before I would say the last couple of years, the answer was like one. I don't want a quota. I don't think discount programs make sense. I think you weight the bid based on the fact that it's a minority-owned business. So, you know, 2% on a bid, and I believe the proposal was 2%. Yeah. So if someone bids 100000 versus 98000 and the minority-owned business is 100000 and the non is, is ninety-eight, that's that's not an advantage. They can still go with the 100 because VOCAP is going to make a different decision. But I'm going to change the way it's done. And we're going to work with VOCAP to understand that, okay, this is a minority-owned business or a woman-owned business that meets all the requirements we need, even if their bid is 10% more. We need to focus on helping them. How do we get their bid down? How do we help them understand where their bid is deficient? How do we work with them to, to make sure they're in line? Because a lot of people don't understand the way that the process works. And this is the way it's rigged in, in businesses' favor of who, knows, who know how to play the game. There's this thing called a change order. And what happens is someone will come in and, and look, bid low. And then after about four months, they say, hey, costs have gone up. We got to do a change order. Well, they're already doing the work. So if they're already doing the work, you're not going to fire them and go hire somebody else because they've already done half the work. You're going to say, oh, how much more is it? Ah, it's 10000 more. Okay, change order. All set. Yeah. So they end up bidding the same amount as the person who went in there with an honest bid, but the person with the honest bid up front didn't get the work. Mm-hmm. The person who kind of bid really low and said, you know, we could do it for 98, but in reality, it's probably going to cost 110. You know what? We'll try to get it at 98, but they never do. So it's changes, it's cha- fundamental systemic changes like that that say, hey, listen, this is a no change order bid. So you, you can bid, yeah. but you, you, get, you get the money, you got to go do it. So it's, it's changing the process like that to make it that this is the bid and the bid is the bid. There is no change orders. Now, you, within reason, if the project goes beyond a year or something, or if the city does something, like I negotiating contracts for a living helps me understand. You write a contract with someone that says, okay, you have agreed to do this for, for a fee. Uh, I have agreed to provide you with A, B, C, and D. If I give you A, B, C, and D, you got to do the job for the fee. If I make a mistake and I have an issue, then you know what? You're right. I caused this issue. I owe you. But if I didn't, you got to do it for what you said you could do it for. Because that's how you solve the problem. Because now all of a sudden when people come in to vocap and they start giving their bids, there won't be any change orders because we have an ironclad contract that gets signed that says, okay, we sold you A, B, C, D. You do it for, for that. And if it doesn't come through, you lose money, yeah. not the city. So I think that's that's the structural change I will bring as mayor. And I think, and that's why, you know, someone who's thinking about things from a perspective of business makes a lot of sense. Mm. To uh, to pivot to politics, mm. it's uh, the campaign between you and Councilman Hopkins has, has certainly been contentious. Uh, there's there's been uh, a lot of sparring and, and uh, a little unsparing at times. The two. Uh, criticism that you've been lobbing at each other um, so uh, I, I guess you know looking to the, the primaries just a few weeks away looking you know, to are you are you concerned about party unity heading into the fall into November and and would if, if Ken is the nominee will you support him so the thing about primaries is no one person decides the primary now I was lucky enough to get the Republican City Committee endorsement uh, by almost 80 percent by an almost 80 percent margin uh, but again, no one person or one group decides the primary. The people will decide the primary. 
and we're in the we're in the community. We've passed out over ten thousand palm cards already. Uh, we've done a few mailers. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people. We've done a lot of good social media work. Uh, we're really working hard to get to the voters and get our message out that we want to support small business. We really want to grow education, and we're not going to raise taxes. We're going to cut wasteful spending. We're going to drive grants. We're going to work with the state and federal governments to get more funding, and that message is really resonating. So I am confident that based on the message and based on the work that we're doing, that the people are going to support Mike Farina in the primary. But again, whoever the people support, I will support, because that's the great thing about our, our democracy. If the people support me, I win. So I will support whoever the people choose, and that's, that's how primaries work. Now, it's gotten a little contentious, I'll agree with you, um, but in all reality, that's a primary. You know, he's going to point out my foibles, I'm going to point out his foibles, he's going to try to connect me to something, I'm going to try to connect him to something, and you know, my goal is, is not to be negative, but when somebody says, oh, you, you have a friend that's a lawyer and he's putting it through projects, and I want to remind everybody, well, no, no, opponent, you, you have friends that are lawyers too, and they put through projects too, so, you know, just to say that when he does it, it's, it's the, everything's okay and it's normal, but when I do it, it's, it's illegal or immoral or wrong, well, no, no, you, every, this is politics, everybody donates money to everybody. So to point mine out and then try to defend yours is just silly. So at the end of the day, there are attorneys, there are developers, they all donate to us, and we take their funds. But the thing I've been privileged to do is I've voted against them, and they still support me because they know I'm the right person to lead Cranston. You know, we'll talk about Cumberland Farms for a sec. Um, my opponent likes to say that he was the lone objector of Cumberland Farms. My opponent did not stop Cumberland Farms. The residents stop Cumberland Farms. The residents continually came in and they gave us their feedback and they gave us their their investigations. They gave us their doctor's reports and they gave us all that information. They're the ones that stopped Cumberland Farms. Uh, and when I walked in the mayor's office the night of the vote and I said, listen, mayor, there's, there's no need to put the residents through this. This is not going to pass. I'm pulling it. That's the truth. That's what happened. And I didn't make a lot of friends doing that. Um, People were not happy because they wanted the development, but I was I was standing by the people. So no one person stops a development. It's a collaborative effort of the residents. And it's the same thing with the election. Like no one person picks who the next mayor is gonna be. It's all about the people. And we've done a lot of work and, and I'm proud to say, I'm humbled by the work that we've done. You know, it's, it's amazing when I see, even this weekend, I'll give you a great example. You know, we had a drop on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Now, I spread it out over the four days because when people are out there now dropping a portion of the city for us. I spread it out over four days. You, know, you don't want to have too many people in one spot at one time because COVID and you want to be socially distant. So I figured I'll get, you know, what, four people a day, five people a day for four days. I'll get 16 people. We had over 70 people show up the first three days. And today I got seven doing the, the last little chunk. That's a lot of people showing up to help me drop the city. And we did a lot. We got rid of 4,000 palm cards in three days. And they're not just people that are dropping palm cards and leaving. If they see somebody outside, they let them know, hey, I'm here canvassing for Mike Farina. He's got the skills and abilities ready to lead Cranston. These are people who believe in what we're doing. So it's really humbling and, and has been a great experience for me to, to go through this. So the election process, though it's tough and, uh, you know, it, it's difficult, 
to, to be in it and, and see yourself, you know, in the paper sometimes. But in reality, people know I'm the right guy to lead the city. Um, you know, my opponents, you know, and you printed this in your article last week about fundraising in Q2. Uh, of all my opponents, I'm the only one that didn't send out a fundraiser letter or any kind of request for funds in Q2. I didn't ask the people for money. You know, my team, we sat back and we talked about it and we said, you know, it's COVID. It's March, April, May, June. We don't want to ask people for money because we knew people would, would cut us some checks. Mm -hmm. But if they're struggling or they're out of work or, or their spouse is out of work or they're unsure about where their next food bill is going to come from, we didn't ask for money. And we raised $11,000 from just people sending us unsolicited donations, just people, citizens of Cranston just sending us a check. We took down the donation ability on our website because we didn't want to raise money. We didn't want to take funds from people. You know, my opponent sent out two fundraiser letters in that time. That's what he wants to do, that's fine. We are running a different kind of campaign. Once COVID happened, and this is again, it goes back to me as a budgeter, me as a forecast guy. We built a plan for what we we're gonna spend on signs, what we we're gonna spend on mailers, what we we're gonna spend on palm cards. And we've stuck to that. You know, we put out 500 lawn signs and 75 4x4s. Actually, I only have 70 because four got stolen and uh, one got damaged on Saturday, so we have to go replace those. But it's, we're not going to, I'm not going to go buy more signs. Like, we have a budget. Mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've hit our budget. I'm not going to ask residents for money so I can go buy more signs. We're done. Like, the sign portion of the campaign is done. Yeah, we got probably 50 in arrears that we kept just to replace some lawn signs, and I got about four or five, four by fours in the, in the, in the garage just to, to fix ones that are broken. But there's only four weeks left. The goal now is, is not signs. The goal now is to identify voters, get out our message, talk to people. And uh, you know, we were in Garden City yesterday, and I, and I walked up to a person that had my opponent signing in a lawn. And uh, I just handed him a palm card. I said, hi, I'm Mike Farina. I just want to let you know that I'm running for mayor. And she goes, I know who you are. And I said, okay, thank you, have a good day. And she said, no, 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 I want to I talk to you. And she asked me some questions and we talked and we talked and I was with her for about 15 minutes. And she said, you know, I knew who you were, but now I know you're the right guy to lead the city. Opponent signed right on her lawn. This is resonating with a lot of people that when it comes down to it, and this election comes down to, do you elect an experienced leader in Mike Farina, someone who's been the council vice president, the council president, who's worked a career to become a director of a Fortune 5 company in areas that would translate really well to be the, the mayor, or do you elect a retired teacher? And, and people are siding with skills, mm -hmm. skills and abilities, abilities to lead. We'll be ready to lead day one. And when I say ready to lead day one, everyone's like, oh, as soon as you take office? No, the day after the election, we're going to start. And I look forward to transitioning from Mayor Fung. You know, I look forward to winning the primary and then garnering his support. I do. You know, he said he's going to support whoever wins the primary. Like me, he believes that whoever the people decide will be the nominee. So I look forward to, to continuing this campaign after the primary and, and working to be the next mayor. Uh, the city council is going to see a lot of turnover. Um, Huge change. From, yeah. Huge. And from, I guess, you know, from your, how important is it to you that the council stay Republican and then do you think the council's in good hands with, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of younger incumbents that will be there? Yeah, so I, I look at it like this. When we're, when, we're all, when we're all running for office, you have two teams. I'll put it in football terms because I'm a football guy. You got the Patriots and the Giants. 
and naturally my team is the Patriots. So the Patriots and the Giants are sitting here and we're and we're we're against each other and we're we're trying to win. We're trying to run up the score. We're trying to win. After the election in November, we're no longer the Patriots and the Giants. We are now the Cranston All-Star team. We have been chosen to be on the big team, the big squad. And at that point, you have a coach, you have a captain, and you have the members. Mayor becomes the coach, council president becomes the captain, members of the council become the members. We all have to work together to move Cranston forward. Once you're elected, you have an obligation to serve the people, not serve politics. And my hope is that of the nine people that get elected to the council, four are already four are already in. Uh, of the five that are there, I think the five that are running, um, whoever wins, would work for the people. Because if you can put people before politics, you're always going to do the best. And I can promise you, and anyone listening to this, as mayor, I will never support a partisan agenda. I will support things that move Cranston forward. And if you're always doing the right thing and you're always moving Cranston forward, it doesn't matter who's on the city council because they're going to have to look at what you're doing and say, I agree. That is the mark of a leader. So I'm hopeful that the Republicans hold control. Uh, but again, there are some Democrats who I've worked with in the past. Paul Arquetto is running citywide. Uh, I, I ran with Paul when I, you know, back in the day. So I know I have a, a good affinity for how Paul thinks and, and his view of the city. And Paul, you know, is a, is a Cranstonian. And, and he's, he's been a, he was a decent councilman. And he, he usually stands on the side of the city. I see that he, he also received the firefighter. He did, and again, you know, the firefighters and police endorse people that they know care about the city, that they know are the best for the city. Um, they pick me because they know I'm the right guy, and they pick Paul because they think he, he can do well too. Uh, with new people, you don't know what they're going to do until they're in there. So Republican or Democrat, it th doesn't matter. Like, I've gotten to know all the Republicans running. When they all announced they were running, we met with them, myself and the chairman, and we talked with them about what they would need to do and how they would need to, to they really wanted to do this and we vetted them heavily again no one person recruits a team the team recruits the team and we've talked to them and we vetted them and we discussed it with them and, and it was it was a good good conversation with all of them and they all a few of them decided to run some of them didn't get their signatures sadly but you know we've put together a good solid team of young people but you don't really know how they're going to be until they're on the city council um you know, it's point in fact, when I first got to city council, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was privileged to have a few people who would help me understand what to do. And uh, it was Democrats and Republicans. Mike Favicchio was definitely a mentor when I was on the council my first term. And, and he would tell me, you know, hey, you know, this is what this means, this is what that means. Mario Aceto, uh, once we all became elected, it didn't matter that I was a Republican or a Democrat or they were Democrats or our Republicans. We were nine members of the same body, and and I, and that that stayed with me the entire time I've been on the council. That doesn't matter if you're an R or D. John Donegan, John is a progressive Democrat. We can agree on that, right? There are some, a lot of things he does that I'm like, you know what? That's a really good idea. Some of the things I don't agree with, but why should I vote down the good things? Because he's a Democrat. You know, I'll put forward legislation. If they agree with it, they sit there and say, you know what, this is good legislation. I agree with this. I'm going to vote for it. Again, 
you're always doing the right thing for the city, everybody's going to vote yes. I know you received the, the city community's endorsement, as, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. by a pretty wide margin. Have you encountered any skepticism from voters or from, from Republicans in the community given that you, you switched parties a few years ago? No, because they know I'm the right person to lead. And this, and this is what resonated in the Republican City Committee. You know, my opponent was trying to say before the city committee endorsement, he was the only real Republican in the race. Uh, he's pivoted that. Now he says he's a moderate Republican. But he used to be the only real Republican. Now he's a moderate Republican. Republicans in the city of Cranston aren't your typical nationwide Republican. We are mostly moderate. We're mostly fiscally conservative. And some of us are socially liberal. And we're all at different spectrums on the social liberal ladder. So no one wants to see, no, I can tell you, none of the Republicans in the Republican City Committee want to see people go hungry. Like, they don't want to see people who can't get a job not get support. Um, but there's a level that they all, and, and everyone's different, but we're all pretty on the liberal spectrum a little bit when it comes to social issues, because we're from Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Like, if, if we all transplanted to my brother in Houston, we would not be Republicans. They would be calling us moderate Democrats. But in Rhode Island, we're Republicans because we're really fiscally conservative. I've received no blowback from getting the endorsement. In fact, people who I thought were on the committee that were a little bit more right on the social issues supported me because they know that I'm the right person to lead the city. It, it, it really resonates. The message that resonated from the Republican City Committee is going to translate to the primary. Uh, because in the beginning, I would tell you the vote would, if this vote would happened um, the day my opponent announced, it would have been a lot closer. I still would have gotten the endorsement, but it would have been a lot closer. But as we had time to, to tell people, like, this is what I'm going to do, just like I'm doing with you, people came forward and said, you know what? That's great. And even that night, when we talked, I talked about some of these small business initiatives, some of these education initiatives. His idea was to plant flowers in Rawl Square. Those are nice things, but they're not going to drive small business. How do we get more loans? How do we get more grants? How do we build a, a platform so they can understand how to, how to grow their business? How do we help them grow their business? How do we do tax stabilization bonds? Can we do tax stabilization bonds? You know, th there's a $500,000 limit right now on a tax stabilization bond. Should we lower that? Should we make it a little lower so small businesses like, I don't know, PJs, they want to invest and buy the land behind them and, and, and blow the back of their building out maybe? I don't know. But that's something they could want to do. But that only may cost $110,000. Should they not have the ability to have their tax taxes frozen and, and, and grow with the city? Should we not invest in them? So those are things that a mayor needs to, those are positions a mayor needs to have. You know, when I become mayor, it's gonna be, we're gonna go through the books. We're gonna go through everything. You know, as a councilman, you see the budget, but you don't really see the, the details behind the budget. You can't really look at, at, the, at the, 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 you can open the budget and say, okay, this is what they say they're spending, but you're not gonna go pull all the invoices. As mayor, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go through that, we're gonna go through that building we're going to find every piece of wasteful spending, and we're going to eliminate it because we have to. To uh, one last political question, this is why I, I asked uh, Councilman Stegos and Councilman Hopkins about the, the, the presidential race this year, obviously, is, is on the forefront of everyone's mind. It really is. It, it, it's, there's really no escaping it, I think, for nope. a lot of voters, you know, and you've probably been getting the question, what are you, do you support President Trump? Will you be voting for him? I support Republicans being a Republican endorsed candidate. Um, I don't like some of the things he says or does. I wish he would just not tweet um, because I think that's really, it just, he's an, I wouldn't sit down and have a beer with the guy. 
but he's the Republican endorsed candidate, and I'm the Republican endorsed candidate. So at this point, you're probably going to vote for Donald Trump. I don't really love him. You know, I, I look at this race, and, and a lot of people said this on social media, for the president, not for my race. We're choosing between two really poor candidates. I don't like either one of them. And I had the same problem in 2016 when Trump ran the first time against Hillary. Um, I would have loved to have seen some, some better people or people win primaries. Uh, and I know you and I have talked about this before, that, that everyone thinks Biden is the only shot to beat Trump. But I don't know. I just, I, I'm not a really big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Who would be your, is there like a person that would be your right? Yeah, you know, I would have loved to see, if John McCain hadn't uh, passed away, I would have loved to see him kind of get in there and run 2016 and do well. Um, I like Kasich, who was the Ohio governor. Uh, so there were there are some Republicans I think they can do it, but nobody wanted to run against Donald Trump. It's funny, even Republicans didn't want to deal with it. Republicans who were thinking about running were like, you know what, <laughs> I just don't want to deal with this. Because it's it's he's he says crazy things, but you know I'm a Republican. I gotta support him. I don't agree with him, all the things he says. I don't agree with all the things he does. Um, so, John Kasich speaking at the Democratic convention. I know he is, which is crazy because he doesn't like Trump. Right. So you know, and and that's kind of what presidential politics has become. That it's it's either anti-Trump or pro-Trump, and the, the middle people like me who are like, well, you know, I don't really, I'm not really pro-Trump, but I'm not anti-Trump. I'm like in the middle, like I want to vote for the person I think is going to do the best job. I want to vote for the person who's going to bring jobs and, and, and economy back. I, I don't like his handling of the, of the COVID crisis. I think he's pivoted way too much. Um, you know, look at what Governor Raimondo has done. She's basically held the line and, and let the, the, the science dictate what her outcome is. I look at what Trump has done, and, and I'm just like, he's all over the place. And I think that's one of his fatal flaws, uh, that he just, he, whoever talks to him last, he can just move. I don't know. Yeah. I'm worried. I'm more concerned with leading Cranston uh, sure. and, and, and becoming the mayor because I think we need someone who's going to have my skills and abilities to run the city. Yeah. Yeah, that's the question. I know. Yeah. If people ask me on the trail, and I tell them the same thing I just told you. Like, you know, I had one woman say, well, I'm, I'm anti-Trump, so I won't vote for you. I'm like, well, okay. But, you know, remember, <laughs> I have all these skills. Mm-hmm. I have all this, this good, solid ability, and just because I'm a Republican doesn't mean I'm him. And I think that's that's the challenge that a lot of Republicans in the, in the state are going to have. Um, but having been a Democrat, having been an elected Democrat, you know, for me, it's 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 not about party locally. You know, it's not about party. It's about pick the person you think is best for the job. And and that's really how I've always always done this. That's why when you say, do you think all the Republican council candidates will be great? I don't know. Some of them could be. You got to. It's like it's like being a. a an all, a, a high school athlete, right? And you go to college. And you were great in high school. You were fantastic. But just because you go to college doesn't mean you're going to be great. It's a whole different ball game. And a lot of people who get there aren't prepared. And that's a lot, a lot like this mayor's race, where you have a bunch of people running who have done a lot of things, but none of them have had the leadership skills to actually run a city or run a company. I do. Like, I'm not going from AAA to the big show. I'm just leaving one show and going to another. I'm leaving the corporate arena where I'm a leader, coming to the city of Cranston, where I have actually been a leader as the council president. So I'm trying to transition 
to help the people. And you know, I love Cranston. Like I said, I've lived here my whole life. Um, I have roots in the city. I have a vested interest in the city's success because I have two small children who go to school here. I want them to have the same kind of opportunities that I had growing up. I want them to be able to go to college coming out of Cranston West. I want them to t get a good education in high school so they can be prepared for college. And then they can continue on and, and become career-minded people and then ha grow their families here in Cranston. And, and, you know, being that I graduated college in 96, you know, people forget because my opponent keeps saying that, that, you know, he's mature. For him, mature equals age. I'm 42. I'm four years older than Alan Fung was when he became mayor for the first time. Four years older. Um, I'm three years younger than Trafficanti when he became mayor. So they must have been immature too. But when maturity equals age, I can't win that argument. But I look at where I am in my life. I look at all the things I've done, the growth I've had on the city council. I'm not the same person I was when I was elected councilman eight years ago. And I'm not the same person I was when I was elected council president four years ago. I've grown. I've, I, and, and that's what, what I love about this path I've been on. I've learned my flaws. I've worked through them. I've tried to overcome them. I've become a better Mike Farina because of this journey. And that's one thing I'm always gonna take with me that, that no matter what happens in September and November, I'm a better leader because of my time in the city of council and my time defending the residents of the city of Cranston. Um, I think that pays dividends. Having, the, having had that experience is completely different than just being a councilman or a council person for a couple of terms. You really understand more of the inner workings of government as the council president. Mm -hmm. You just do. Um, a lot of people, you know, and, and some Republicans have said that they want to be the council president. It's not an easy job. It's, uh, and I said this when Maria Wall was retiring. We, I was lucky to have a great city clerk who could help me when I first became council president and could kind of guide me through that process. Um, and, and it's not easy. You know, you got to understand open meetings law, so you have to kind of be a quasi-lawyer. Before I became council president, I would never even try to tell you anything about law. But as I've grown in the job, I understand the law because I've had lawyers advise me. Uh, it's, it's the same thing with growing in the role as a chairman of a committee. Um, when you're the chairman of the finance committee, I would probably say to you, Mike Favicchio didn't know a whole lot about being the finance chair before he became the finance chair. He's been a very good finance chair. He's been level-headed, he's been leading well, and, and I think those, those skills come from actually being a leader. Uh, so people who are just sat on a committee or, or, or a part of something doesn't mean that you're the leader. It doesn't mean that, that your voice is any more stronger than any other council person. Because in reality, there's nine council people. You're one vote in nine. When you are in the leadership, it's your job to figure out what you think is best for the city. And then you work with the members of your group to help them understand what they think is best for the city. And you do it in the chamber. And you talk about you talk about the challenges, you talk about the opportunities, you talk about the strengths, and you talk about all the things of a project or a piece of legislation. And in that meeting, you come to a, a resolution, you come to an idea. And, and we've been privileged that we've done a lot of 9-0 votes because a lot of things we've done are good for the city. Uh, but you know, everyone talks about like, well, I did this and I did that. And I did this. There's no I. The city council is a team. So even to, even though like I submit a piece of legislation, if it gets passed, the council passed it. Even though it was my idea, 
the council passed it because they saw merit in my idea. Uh, and a lot of people say, take credit for things all the time that weren't even their ideas, that somebody else presented. Uh, you know, I would never fault John Donegan and Councilman Psychos for putting through their diversity language on, on, the, uh, on diversity personnel or diversity suppliers. I think those are good, those, those topics have merit and we should discuss them. I think their, their way of doing it via law probably isn't the right approach. We should work to, like I told you, change the policies for BOCAP, change the policies for hiring. I'm all about eliminating barriers to entry because I believe that really solves those problems because if you eliminate barriers to entry, anybody can come in. So I think that's, that's my approach. But I don't think those ideas didn't have merit. So we talked about it, we discussed them, and, and I said to Councilor Madani, we should probably continue these and work on them together and continue to look at them and, and, and understand them. You know, when Councilman Stikos wanted to do this, the solar, you know, he's, he takes complete credit for that. Well, we passed that as a group because we all think solar energy is important. We all think green energy is good. Uh, but when the new solar change came through, I like to call it the pulling a fast one, uh, they want to change the law. After we've spent two years fi fixing the solar ordinance from 2014, we spent two years on that. And now they want to change the law. In one meeting. One meeting. Wait a minute. <laughs> we'll back back up, guys. This and, you know, I missed that ordinance committee meeting because with everything going on, it's, it's very difficult to be to every committee meeting. And being the ex officio, I have the privilege of occasionally not showing up, and the one that I decide not to show up, they're trying to throw through a solo ordinance that I'm like, wait a minute. So as soon as that came to the city council, I made my opinion felt, and the council backed me up, and, and we agreed that we should continue this and have more discussion and have planning come to us and tell us why we need this. Uh, but that wasn't me sticking up for the residents. That was the council sticking up for the residents based on me telling everyone kind of how I felt. And, that, and that's really what... That's what democracy is. A resident can do it. A resident can come up. I mean, I look at the John Robinson who came to us every month in live meetings for Yardworks, every month. And he got up and he talked about Yardworks and we worked hard to try to change that and, and get Yardworks into compliance. And, and, you know, other councilmen spent years, years trying to fix it. He came before us. I called the administration. I said, this has to stop. They send inspections and, we're, and they work to stop it. Now I still think we got to fix it and get more to do but it's it's action from residents or a member of the council that's what democracy is and that's why i love being elected and so i love serving the people do you uh i don't know if you want to address this one but do you have any thoughts on the democratic field do you have a, a preferred someone you prefer to run again i i don't believe in preferred um I, I think the people will decide who their their candidate is coming out of that race just like the people will decide the republican race um i've been on the council with steve for eight years I would say as much as Steve is Steve, um, he's a good guy. You know, he's got his ideas, and some of them are different than mine. He's not a bad person. Doesn't make him a bad person because we don't agree on things. Uh, so I'll be uh, I'll be interested to see how that race shakes out. Uh, I I know Maria. Uh, Maria was elected once as a council person and was appointed once to fill the term uh, vacated by Rob Pelletier. Um, I'll be interested to see what Maria's been doing the last ten years and how she's been involved in in other aspects of our community other than city government uh, to know that, that you know she's up to date on the current affairs and, and COVID and everything that's happening. So I've seen their literature, Dan, and I haven't seen a lot of, uh, of, of meat to what they're all gonna do. Uh, I, I, have, I follow them all on 
on social media. I watch their posts. Um, and to be frankly, it's it, frank. It's pretty lackluster. You know, we're, we're putting out content. We're putting out blog posts. We're putting out videos on how we're gonna do the things we're gonna do. How we're gonna pay for them. We're actually putting out content, and, and I tell you, that's resonating with a lot of people. What we've been doing on social media has been tremendous. We're getting a tremendous amount of feedback, we're, we're, and we're hitting new audiences, which is something that you know is great. And with COVID, you have to do that. But I, I look, I look with bated breath, and as to who the opponent will be coming out of that September primary. Um, again, I'd be interested to hear more about their platforms. I think I'm going to be watching the uh, the candidate forum with them yeah. pretty intently, just to hear what they have to say. Um, Again, because when I look at their palm cards and I look at their materials, they're, they're pretty simple. You know, I, I've, you know, Steve's is one little tiny card and it just says, you know, I've done this, this, and this. Please elect me. And Maria's is, we're all in this together and there's some, some sound bites. And, and they're fine, but I want to know a little bit more about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it as a, as a resident, you know? Because in reality, even though I'm running, I like to know who's, who's running for office and what they're running for. It's, it's, it's the, it's the resident in me that says, okay, what are you going to do for me? Yeah. Like, what, what are you going to do to help the people? And I'm trying to be, and you can look at the back of my palm card, I'm trying to get that message out every day. Because the goal is, I want them to elect me not because I'm the most popular, not because I have the highest likability. I want them to elect me because I know I'm the right guy. Yeah. That's, that's what this race comes down to for me. Do you think I'm the right guy to lead the city? And most people, when I talk to them, are saying yes. And then wrapping up with the, uh, you know, the what does Dave want in your administration yeah, you know, I mean, day one of my administration starts literally right after the, 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 the win in November where we're going to work with Mayor Fung and we're going to build a solid transition team. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, everybody who works at City Hall will, will hand me in their resume. Um, we will put job postings out. We're going to look to hire the best and brightest talent available. Um, as you know, the salaries in the City Hall are, are, are relatively low compared to corporate government. But we're going to hire the best people available. And I don't care if they supported me or not. If they're the best person for that job and they apply for it, that's what we're going to do. This is, this is not going to be run like the good old boy network. I haven't identified who my finance chair is. I haven't asked anyone to stay on. I haven't done anything to cajole or tell people who work at City Hall today, if, you, if you're on the fence, you can't have a job. I don't believe in that. I never have. I believe in hiring the best and brightest talent available because... Those people defend the city of Cranston, just like me as mayor. They're there on the front lines working for the residents. I'm not hiring them. The residents are. The residents are telling me, we want the best and brightest. I've heard from so many people, don't just hire more of the same. Go out and get talent. Get the right people to lead the city. And some of them may already be there, and some of them are. But we're going to hire the best we can. We're going to we're going to build a team of people that are going to be a great leader group for the city of Cranston. But I'm going to be involved. I'm not going to be an absentee mayor. I'm not going to just be there and let the finance chair dictate to me what the budget looks like because I can't understand a budget. I'm not going to let the lawyers dictate to me what's right and wrong based on the law if I'm aware. But if I'm not, by all means, the lawyers are going to help me. We need people who know what they're doing. And that's going to be my, my goal day one. I haven't built a team. I haven't started building a team. Because we don't campaign on the idea of, well, well I, have, I promise jobs to people. We don't do that. Because we're Republicans. Republicans don't promise jobs. Because if you're promising jobs to people to get their support, that's not really real support. That's support in lieu of something. 
I don't want that kind of support. I don't want someone who says, well, if you don't give me a job, I won't support you. Okay, don't support me. Because I want people who are here because they believe in the cause. Because people that believe in the cause are way more important than people that are here because I promised them something. Or I already helped them get something. So that's just, and that's a big difference between me and a lot of politicians. So I just, I believe that that'll be a big thing. And day one, it's going to be, we're going to look at the budget. We're going to, we're going to go through the, the invoices. We're going to look at all the, the files. We're going to go through everything. But the transition team is going to have a heavy task of figuring out, because you got to remember, no matter who becomes mayor, they're inheriting a budget that is bad. And they're going to be right in the middle of it. There is no reprieve. There is no time to learn on the job. There is no time to go out and hire a finance director so he can figure out what to do because it's going to take a new employee months to figure out how to manage the city. We don't have time for that. We're going to be right in the middle of a storm. When you're in the middle of a storm, you have to hire someone that's prepared to lead right away. Because I firmly believe that coming out of COVID, if we have a second, second wave, which it looks like we are, looks like numbers are going up, it looks like everything we talked about back in May, uh, and everyone said, oh, you're crazy, the sky is not falling. Well, the sky has fallen, and we're, we're heading there where, you know, look, look at restaurants. We talked about the meals tax revenue. You know, Mayor Fung assumed that, said, I think 50% of the restaurants will close. No. But I know if we don't have outdoor dining, which we won't in October, November, December, and January, February, and March, because it's going to be too cold, well, their capacity is going to be at half. So if their capacity is at half, then yeah, meals tax revenue is going to be down in half. And how many can sustain half? Not every restaurant can sustain only being open at half capacity. So we could see some closures, and we have. So if this trend continues, and we keep seeing incidents go up, and they keep talking about continued in-home advisories and continued quarantines, well, we're going to have a serious problem. And with the schools not knowing what they're going to do, they could see increased expenses. Um, we've had some challenges with firefighter overtime because of COVID and police overtime because of COVID. If those continue, well, we're going to have a, a real rough run of it, and so is the state. So this is not a, you know, everyone thinks COVID, oh, it's, it's a one-year problem. No, because the, the state did it. They used a one-time budget fix to close the 2020 budget, they pulled money out of the rainy day fund. What happens next year? You can't pull money out of the rainy day fund again. Yeah. So you did it once. You got to go make cuts. What's the biggest expense for the state government? City and town aid. Mm -hmm. So this is this is going to be a perpetual problem that's going to take us a couple years to get out of. So you need to be prepared for that. And my administration, day one, day 10, day 20, day 30, day 40, day 60, and day 90 are going to be okay, how do we make sure we keep the train on the tracks? How do we make sure we're, we're running as lean as possible? How do we make sure we cut any wasteful spending? We're not doing any projects that don't need to be done. We're literally going into financial crisis mode as we figure this out. And, and the goal will not be to raise taxes, not to have a supplemental tax increase, to try to work with all the department heads, the schools, the unions to say, hey, everybody, we got a problem. How do we work together to solve it? Because collaboration coming out of this is going to be key. And, you know, in talking with the police union and the fire union, even the, even the laborers, collaboration is key. Like, we're all going to have to come together at some point in the near future and say, what do we do? How do, how do, we, how do we partner? 
how do we negotiate some things where maybe, hey guys, you give up a raise for, a, and I guarantee it for the, the, la the last year of your contract. How do we make some changes to the budget today that we can, you know, I hate to call it kicking the can down the road, but how do we change things a little bit? I know we have some contracts in place. I'd rather see us take that raise and move it to the end and, and maybe increase it a little bit to help right now. Uh, and, and, you know, are you willing to negotiate that and talk about it and discuss it? Because if, you know, if not, the alternative is bad. How do we work together to, 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 to do things that make sense for everybody? Because my goal is to keep everybody employed as mayor, as mayor and not raise taxes. Lofty goal. That's one of those things, Dan. Says easy, does hard. You know, it's, it's going to be a, a stressful time for the next mayor. And, and the first six months on the job are not going to be for the faint of heart. It's going to be, and it's not about lip service or, or, or putting out the quotes or saying it, it's really going to be a lot of work. And I'm prepared for that work. I've, I've, I do it every day. So it'll be, a, it'll, be a, it'll be a lot of work. But instead of doing it for a company, I'm doing it for my city. And I'm doing it for my kids. So for me, that's, that, that's one of the biggest reasons why I want to be the mayor. And I think I'd be a great mayor. Well, Council President, thank you so much, and uh, good luck. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great to be here and sit with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. And again, I think I said opportunity twice, but thank you so much. It's always good to see you. Radio Beacon is a production of Beacon Communications, publisher of the Warwick Beacon, Cranston Herald, Johnston Sunrise, and Coventry Reminder newspapers. Find us online at warwickonline.com, cranstononline.com, johnstonsunrise.net. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at RhodeyBeat, R-H-O-D-Y-B-E-A-T. This podcast is hosted by Anchor Podcasts. Subscribe today on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or other podcast platforms.